We're going to be jumping back in, but just to help you really get your bearings, this book is actually structured as three sermons. It's often referred to as speeches. Uh, Commentators and others will, will refer to three speeches in Deuteronomy. I believe it's more helpful to think of Deuteronomy as a collection of three sermons that Moses preached to God's people the second generation of Israelites that were gathered on the plains of Moab, whose parents had spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, rebelling against God. So here is how the book is divided. In chapters 1 to 11, it's recounting God's loving deliverance of Israel, bringing them out of Egypt, and now on the brink at the Jordan River of stepping into the promised land and inviting a response that as they cross the river, God will bless them as they learn to love the Lord their God with all of their heart and with all of their soul and all their strength. Then sermon number two kicks in and in chapter 12, you have this recapitulation of the law. How do we listen and obey God's word and step into this land and experience his blessing. We'll get to that in like 17 months based on our pace. So 12 through 26, and then in chapter 27, the book ends with a catalog of blessings and curses that are contingent on whether Israel will shema, listen and obey the Lord. And the book concludes with Moses going up on a mountain and dying. These are his final words preached to Israel. Now, if you've been along this series from the beginning, we're calling this series a people at the boundary because it, it actually just brings and shows us this incredible, messy redemption story of God is, how God is moving his people out of the safe plains of Moab into this new territory in the land of Canaan. But in order for Israel to leave behind their rebellious wilderness ways and step into this land, they need a pastor and a preacher. So God raised up Moses. You see, some of us may be familiar if you've been around church that Moses is responsible for writing what we refer to as the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible. But Moses wasn't just a writer or a leader. He was Israel's first preacher, which is super fascinating if you really think about about Moses' resume. This is one of the most unlikely preachers in history because he was an introverted shepherd with a criminal record who literally told God to his face, you know, I really stink at this public speaking thing. He didn't want to be a preacher. He was a reluctant preacher. With some prodding and Aaron's help, he stepped into that assignment. And as you begin to read your way through Deuteronomy, you begin to realize that Moses didn't just get over his issues with public speaking. He actually went on to become one of the most gifted, passionate gospel preachers in history. And to show you that, that I'm not embellishing, open up chapter nine. We're gonna dive back into Moses' sermon, starting 
at verse one. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart after the Lord, your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn People, full stop. Let's pause there for a moment, shall we? Now, before we work our way through the rest of Moses' sermon in Deuteronomy 9 today, I want you to take a moment and think back to the first memory that you have of meeting a preacher and hearing this thing that we call the gospel the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for our sins. Perhaps if you were raised in a church and you were surrounded with gospel preaching, it might be even difficult to distill the first time that you heard the gospel preached. But for me personally, I was not raised in a house where faith is, was practiced whatsoever. So I can vividly remember the first time that I heard someone share the gospel. You see, during my junior year of high school, my parents went through a really nasty divorce. My dad, who owned a company at the time, was on the verge of losing his company and claiming bankruptcy, and the stress of all of that from the business compounded with different elements, it caused life in my family to unravel. My mom, in the wake of that trauma, she left and she moved back to where I was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba, to be surrounded by her parents and to be knit back into health. And my sister and I were left in Arizona living with my dad that was coping by drinking a lot. So without unpacking all of the details, my home went from being a safe, nurturing place to a very, very unsafe, unstable place. So when Tiff talked about students that are carrying trauma and pain, this picture of an unkept soul, that's a picture of my life in my high school 
years. So I spent a lot of time outside of my house, couch surfing, looking for any invitation to come on over to dinner or be anywhere but home in my high school years. Now, one week when I was at school, there was a girl that I thought was interested in me, and she invited me over to her house for pizza. I grossly misunderstood this invitation. (laughs) Grossly. I couldn't have misinterpreted her intention more. I thought that she really wanted to date me when she actually was utterly convinced uh, that what I needed most was not a date with her, but a date with Jesus. And so she invited me over to her house and imagine my surprise when I thought I was just coming over to have pizza and a date with her when 75 of my not so close peers and friends from high school were gathered at her house and playing basketball. And then they assembled around a fire ring and they began to sing strange songs like brown eyed girl, and lean on me and cats in the cradle. And then they started singing songs about Jesus. And this was very disorienting. I went from brown-eyed girl to songs about Jesus. Unbeknownst to me, the girl that I thought was pursuing me was actually inviting me to a Young Life meeting that was gathered at her house. So I'll never forget this moment when this college student, this guy named Ryan in his 20s, he went up and it's the first time I had ever seen anyone open a Bible. And he opened up to the prophet Isaiah to chapter 53. And he started reading these words that gave a description of Jesus who wasn't beautiful or physically attractive. Isaiah says he was like someone that that would be seen in public and people would turn their face away from Jesus. Someone who was despised and rejected by society. A man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. And the more that I heard this description, internally I began thinking to myself, you know what? That kind of is how I feel right now. And then Ryan went on to share how God sent this suffering servant Jesus to be rejected and betrayed and to become hurtable and killable. And he was nailed on the cross, not because of anything righteous that I had done, but was wounded for me. And through his wounds, I could be healed. And when I heard that message that we call the gospel, everything in me wanted to believe that message. And I did. And since that moment at that Young Life Club meeting, my life has never been the same. That boundary crossing moment for me forever changed the trajectory of my life and who I am. I owe everything in my life that is good to that boundary crossing moment. Friends, please hear this. The gospel is not a truth among truths. It is not a message among messages. It is the only message under heaven and earth that saves 
that transfers us out of death into life, out of hopelessness into hope and gives us life that we can't even contain in ourselves. It's that good. It's that good. And that's why before the people of Israel crossed over into Canaan, into the promised land, they needed more than a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. They needed a fiery preacher with a gospel message that could revolutionize human hearts. That's why God raised up the reluctant preacher, Moses. So what we're going to do with the remainder of our time today is we're going to work through the logic of Moses' sermon. And as we do, what I hope you'll discover is that Moses' sermon sounds an awful like the message that we preach from this stage week in and week out here at River West that we call the gospel. In fact, one theologian that I like a lot that's done a lot of Old Testament work on Deuteronomy named Daniel Block, he refers to Deuteronomy as the gospel according to Moses. The gospel according to Moses. That's what Deuteronomy is. And what we're going to see in chapter nine is that this passage is just one of those places in the Old Testament where the good news of the gospel, the message of redemption, it spills out of every verse. So if you're the note-taking type this morning, the first gospel truth that Moses preaches and wants to impress on the hearts of God's people is this. God loves us and delivers us not because of how righteous and moral we are. Now, it's important to remember that the nation of Israel, as they're about to cross over the Jordan River and enter into Canaan, it is a land that's not just filled with milk and honey and prosperity. It's also filled with enemies that are far more formidable than they are referred to in this passage that we read as the Anakim, the sons of Anak, the Canaanites that were almost a special op group of warriors who were rumored to be giants like Goliath. Now in Moses' own estimation, they are about to go toe to toe with an enemy that they are not ready to meet face to face. An enemy far greater and mightier than they are in every possible respect. The Canaanites were stronger, taller, and just downright scarier than Israel. The Anakites, in particular, they were so ruthless and scary that other nations would sing songs about how well they killed people. Yeah, they just wrote songs about they're really, really well-versed in death. Look at verse three. That's what this is, what it's quoting here. Who can stand before the sons of Anak? That's not just a saying, it's a song. It's like they kill real well. And so you can imagine the terror as, as Israel's going in, but they're severely outmatched. Now, honestly, this matchup was so ridiculously uneven. 
I was trying to think what to compare it to. It would almost be like if the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers, they formed a mega team and they went up against the illustrious football club of Lake Oswego, the Lakers, the Lakers, right across the street. There would be no hope in the world for a bunch of 150 pound teenagers who often still wear socks with Crocs to stand a chance up against the Chiefs and the 49ers. There's not a chance. They would break clavicles. Yeah, as like Patrick Mahone would hit Travis Kelsey, it's like the, the kids would just be mowed over. They wouldn't stand a chance. And yet, look again at verse three and notice, pay attention to the way that God himself promised to go before Israel to defeat their enemies and to do the delivering work that would bring them into Canaan. In verse three, read this again. Know, there, know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire, this like five alarm fire, is Yahweh, is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. So in spite of impossible odds, a nation of malnourished refugees who had about as much military prowess as a high school football team were able to defeat and drive out the greatest military superpower on the face of the earth in that time. Now, in anticipation of the euphoria and the celebration that that victory would elicit among the ranks of Israel, notice how Moses warns Israel to not let a smug, self-righteous attitude well up within their own hearts. In verse four, we read, do not say in your heart. Do not let this internal attitude well up. After the Lord, your God, has thrust them out before you, it is not because of my righteousness, or it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. There's that smug attitude. It's my righteousness that has led to this victory. Almost in a sense to just help visually represent this, the attitude and the equation that was slipping into the hearts of Israel was essentially this. Our righteousness plus Canaan's wickedness equals our victory. And God looks at that equation and says, you got one thing right. Canaan is wicked, but it's not your righteousness that is going to actually bring the victory. It's my gracious promise to Abraham and to Jacob and to other sinful people, and it's my victory through you. So knowing that God's people were going to believe that God was defeating their their enemies and delivering them based on some moral superiority that they had, Moses says that is absolutely not the case. In fact, the opposite is true. 
He is giving you into this land and defeating your wicked enemies, not because you're righteous. You're actually a rebellious and wicked nation, just like the Canaanites. I'm delivering you into this new land because I am a God that lavishes grace on unrighteous people. I want you to see this in the text. Look at how Moses just keeps driving this same nail into the board that it's not our righteousness that it actually brings God's blessing and help. Look at verse five as he just drives it deep into the board. He says again, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Can I ask you something? How do you tend to respond when your life is going really, really well? When you're on a winning streak in your career, where you get the promotion or the job that you were hoping for? Or how about you're in a season where your relationships are flourishing? You're absolutely crushing it in your marriage or a dating relationship. Or if you're a parent, your kids are flourishing and doing well in every category of life, in school and academics, but also in sports and at home. Can I be honest with you? At least for me, I know how my own internal heart works. It's when life is going well, and I kind of feel that I'm on a winning streak, that I'm most susceptible to let a self-righteous, smug, proud attitude well up within me. It's actually when I'm doing well in life, I'm most susceptible to take credit for God's kindness And to begin to reason that maybe the blessings and victories in my life are somehow attributed to how righteous and hardworking I am. Folks, the God of the Bible loves and delivers us and lavishes blessing and help on our lives, not because of how upright and deserving we are, but he's simply that kind of generous, gracious God that actually lavishes kindness on sinners. Amen? Amen. Well, this leads us, and it actually paves the way to this second gospel truth that this passage and Moses' sermon impresses upon us, and it's this. God loves us and delivers us not because of how loyal and loving we are. Now, if you've been following along in our series in Deuteronomy, what I'm about to do will serve as a bit of a recap, but it's really important to understand the overarching theme of Deuteronomy. One, if not the, I would argue, main theme in Deuteronomy is loyal love. Loyalty and love, listening and obeying God with all our hearts, with all of our soul and all of our might, and then loving others, especially those marginalized by society as God's law and God's ways instruct us. 
And throughout Deuteronomy, there's this word that keeps showing up over and over and over again, a whopping 92 times in Deuteronomy, this Hebrew word Shema keeps showing up. Now it's easy to overlook, but in our passage, it was actually the first word that we read together. It's in verse one, that word here is actually in Hebrew, this word Shema which carries the notion of listening, but it also involves obedience. You see, in English, we have separate words for listening and obeying, but in Hebrew, they have a single word that sums up both listening and obeying, and it is the word shema. And God's invitation throughout this book, over and over again, is that if his people would just listen and obey, if they would just stop rebelling and turning away from him so quickly, if they would just shema, they would not only step into a land that is flowing with milk and honey, but their souls and every sphere of their life and society would flourish as God intended. But here's the problem. And by the way, this is not just Israel's problem. It is our problem. No matter how many times God graciously kept extending this invitation to listen and obey to Shema, his people kept on stubbornly persisting in doing the exact opposite. In fact, look again at verse six in your Bible. And look at this summation statement here where he says, know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. That's gospel point number one. For you are a stubborn people. You're not a loyal people. You're a stubborn people. Now this word stubborn, which shows up three times in our chapter, it shows up all over the place in Deuteronomy and other books in the Old Testament. It can be translated stiff-necked. In fact, that's a more literal translation in Hebrew. And so your Bible might actually read that you are a stiff-necked people, depending on what translation you have. It carries this idea of obstinance of actually refusing to bend your will and obey the will of someone else. You know, when I hear this terminology stiff-necked, uh, an amazing thing happened in my mid-40s. I developed a, a condition where the smallest thing can elicit stiff-neckedness. Um, if I don't travel with my pillow, um, if I turn too quickly, if I sneeze or laugh, or heaven forbid, a combination of those two things. If I'm startled at Costco, it doesn't take much for stiff-neckedness to set in. And I just lock up, and I can't turn. I have to do this. Almost like Michael Keaton from the Batman movies. Remember the original Batman? If there was like a bad guy over there, Batman couldn't do this. He had to go like that, you know? He had to turn his whole body. That rigid stiff-neckedness that I know is a physical condition, it's a portrait of our hearts. We get rigid. It's not just that we sin willfully against God, it's that we're so dug in. And the point that Moses is trying to drive home, almost with this nickname, if you are the stiff-necks, 
in the second half of chapter nine is that the way that God is going to deliver us out of that stiff-neckedness is by telling us the truth about our sinful condition. So what Moses does is he draws from some of the most obstinate, unfaithful moments in Israel's history. And he puts the catalog of like their lowest moments and worst sins on display. It's a real chipper part of like the passage right here, but it's critically important that we don't overlook it. And so starting at verse seven, pay attention to how Moses reflects back to them their rebellious, stubborn hearts. In verse seven, Moses says, remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been a rebellious people against the Lord. Even at Horeb, that is Mount Sinai, you provoked the Lord to wrath and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, that's the 10 commandments and the law, the tablets of the covenant the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain and out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And at that end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, arise and go down quickly from here. For your people whom you've brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. And they have made themselves a metal image. Insert golden calf. So furthermore, verse 13, the Lord said to me, I've seen this people and behold, it is a stubborn, stiff-necked group of people. Let me alone that I might destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of you, Moses, a nation mightier and greater than they. Now, let's be honest. When we come to passages like this, I think all of us on some level would prefer something that's just intensely practical, that helps us manage our finances or our time better, or something just overwhelmingly encouraging that just lavishes reminders of how kind and gracious God is, because all of that is true, and there's many of those passages in the Bible. We don't tend to seek out passages that poke us in the ribs like this one does. But here's what you need to know. What Moses knew, along with every faithful gospel preacher in history, they know deep down that salvation is only good news to someone who recognizes they're a desperately stubborn, stiff-necked sinner who needs saving. Amen? The gospel is only good news for stiff-necked sinners. This is why Moses goes to such great lengths throughout this passage to remind Israel of their sinful past by telling them in verse 7, remember and do not forget how you provoke the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. Now, unfortunately, 
Many preachers today shy away from any mention whatsoever of sin or God's justice and holiness or wrath because they don't want to offend people or come across as unloving or out of touch with the times. But in doing so, they empty the true gospel of its staggering beauty and its saving power. In one of my very favorite quotes from one of my very favorite writers of all time. I know pastors are prone to hyperbole, but Frederick Beekner is one of my very, very favorite writers. Listen to what he says about the gospel. Love this. If you've taken the gospel class before, this is probably familiar. The gospel is bad news before it's good news. It's news that man is a sinner, to use the old word. He is evil in the imagination of his heart. That when he looks in a mirror all in a lather, what he sees is at least eight parts chicken, phony, slob. That is the tragedy. But it is also the news that he is loved anyway, cherished, forgiven, bleeding to be sure, but also bled for. Friends, can I tell you something? This is why we have Deuteronomy 9. This is essentially what Moses is doing with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's holding up a mirror to the condition of Israel's heart and our hearts by association. And he's showing us the bad news that you and I really are sinners and we're rebellious and we desperately need a savior. And it's only by accepting that that we can actually receive the good news to come. That we are bleeding for sure, but we're bled for and loved and accepted too. Amen? To help drive this home, I was thinking this week, I want you to take a moment. Imagine for a moment that a well-known author approached you and said, you know what? I've taken notice of you, and I would like to write a book about your life. Now, most of us would pretend to be humble in this moment, but that'd be awfully flattering that somebody wanted to write a book about our life. So let's imagine that you agreed to let this author write a book about you. And so you set up a meeting, you coordinate a time, you meet at a coffee shop, and this author begins to ask you questions, gathering material for this book, asking you about your childhood, where you grew up, where you went to school, who you dated, your closest relationships, your career, your accomplishments, and all of the challenging things that you had to overcome in your life to get to where you are today. And you're loving this. You're on like your fourth cup of coffee. You're like, this book is actually pretty amazing. I'm pretty amazing. But then towards the end of this, the discuss, the, the, this discussion, the author turns to you. He says, okay, now one more thing. I also need to write a chapter about your greatest failures and sins. So can we talk about that? I don't know about you, but I would renege on the book, book deal at that point right there. Because if you're anything like me, that would be a really, really long chapter. It would be like a series of like the Twilight books, you know, like it would be a tome. Some of you are like, what is Twilight? It was a really bad book. So like, like books about like Christopher's sins, it would be like a Twilight series. It would be real, real bad. Now in 
a very pastoral way. Because remember, Moses is not like a speaker. He's a pastor. So in a very pastoral way, that is what Moses is doing right here in Deuteronomy 9. Although we don't have time to read and unpack every verse, look at the way that he reminds Israel of the chapter of their sins, their worst sins. Starting in verse 13, he reminds them of the moment at Mount Sinai, which is referred to as Mount Horeb in our passage, where they worshiped a golden calf instead of the loving and gracious redeemer that just set them free out of slavery in Egypt and brought them through the Red Sea. Then after recounting the golden calf story, look at what Moses does down in verse 22. If that wasn't enough to just remind Israel how stiff-necked and sinful and rebellious they were, look at what he does to sum up and draw from other points in their sordid history. He says, at Taborah also. What happened at Taborah? Bad stuff. You can read about it uh, later. At Massa and Kibroth, Hatva, you provoked the Lord to wrath in those places. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, go up and take possession of the land that I've given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God, did not believe him or obey his voice. You didn't shema. You've never shema. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. Now, folks, it is so important to understand that Moses is drawing from all of these raw, shameful moments in Israel's past, not to drive them to wallow in shame in the wilderness or to stir up self-condemnation, self-hatred. No, it is to lead them and us to abandon our futile attempts to love and forgive ourselves and lead us to the only one that truly can. Stop trying to love and forgive yourself. You'll never give yourself enough grace for that. Not for your worst things, not for your, not for your golden calf moments. Not for that. You're not loving and gracious as you think you are. Give up on that and throw yourself at the feet of one whose name is grace, who's utterly gracious. Folks, everything in Deuteronomy chapter by chapter tries to lead us to this gospel truth right here. God loves us and delivers us sheerly because of grace. God loves you. Why? Because he loves you. God delivers you. Why? Because he loves you. Because he's that kind of gracious God. And that's why this passage ends. And this is so remarkable and beautiful. I pray that the Holy Spirit helps you in this moment to catch this. The passage ends not with Moses simply exposing Israel's sins, but with him interceding and pleading for God's forgiveness and grace. That's how it ends. Look in verse 25. So then, this is Moses, I laid prostrate, prostrate before the Lord these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people, 
and your heritage, whom you've redeemed through your greatness, whom you brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness, the stiff-neckedness of this people, or their wickedness, or their sin, lest the land from them that you brought us out say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land he promised them, and because he hated them, He has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness for they are your people and your heritage whom you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. Folks, this may very well be one of the most beautiful portraits of the gospel in the entire Old Testament. You see, Moses, as he was laying prostrate and pleading for grace for 40 days and 40 nights, he wasn't just acting as a gracious mediator or a priest on behalf of Israel. He was pointing forward to an infinitely greater and more glorious, perfect high priest named Jesus. Look at another sermon in the book of Hebrews, in chapter seven, how Jesus is described as the one that is like but greater than Moses. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Friends, Moses pleaded for grace for 40 days and 40 nights. King Jesus pleads and prays for sinners forever, on and on into eternity. Moses prayed that Israel would be saved by God's outstretched, redeeming arm. Jesus Christ is the outstretched arm of God. When he stretched out his arms on the cross, he was giving a sacrifice to save to the uttermost any who turned to him. That's the gospel according to Moses, and that's the gospel that saves. Amen? Amen. Amen. We're gonna have the worship team come and we're gonna respond in the manner that Christians throughout the centuries have celebrated the gospel by coming to the table and receiving the bread and the cup. This morning, if God has stirred and opened up your heart, if this picture of Jesus being a gracious priest who's praying for you right now, if you want to stop rebelling, Stop refusing the grace that God is extending. You can come and you can receive the bread, which represents Christ's body broken for our sins, nailed to the cross so that you and I can be cleansed and saved and healed. And you could take the cup that is filled with grape juice, 
grape juice, but representative of the blood of Christ, which washes away once and for all, all of our sins, all our golden calf moments. We're going to respond this morning by singing the words of a hymn that is my favorite, favorite hymn. Before the throne of God, the words tell us that before the throne of God above, we have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for you and me. That's why you're here. Because we are a people that are lost without grace. Amen? Amen. So I'm going to pray and just encourage you to just quiet and still your heart this morning. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we see this morning that none of us is righteous, not one. None of us have, Lord, any ground to claim anything from you, and we confess together that we often take credit for things that are just an extension of your kindness. Father, your kindness has been with us all the days of our life, and we have not been kind in return. Lord, like your people Israel, there is a part within us that is just so stubborn and set against you, and it's a mystery. We don't understand why. But in this moment, Father, I just pray, if any are here and they haven't just let down their defenses and said yes to your grace, that is undeserved, that we have never earned, that we can't lose, that, Father, your grace would be poured out through the love of the Holy Spirit into hearts this morning so that we might become, with your help, people of grace. Jesus, thank you in this moment that you live to plead for us. There are heavy things in our life, Lord, where we take comfort from your pleading. Father, help us not to resist your help, but to cry out for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.